Take your Bible, turn to 1 John. Uh, don't often footnote my sermons, but I'm going to today. This sermon is heavily influenced by the work of John Stott. Um, give proper credit where credit is due. 1 John, starting in verse 5. God's Word. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray again and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray for the work of your spirit now, that he would be faithful to the task to which you have sent him, to illumine the scriptures to the minds of the saints, to sanctify the people of God, to give us understanding and belief. Oh Lord, we desire to be transformed. Give your help, we pray in your spirit, for Christ's sake, amen. Gatekeepers. It's an element of social media that you probably haven't thought about, but maybe the biggest thing we've lost in the last 20 years in our country is gatekeepers. You know, hundreds of years ago, if anything was going to be published, if anything was going to go into the public eye, if anything was going to be consumed by the masses, it had to pass through a gatekeeper. There was someone or something or somebody that was in charge of cutting away things that didn't need to go out. And in some ways, I guess it's a positive thing that we've done away with that. Underrepresented voices have a chance to speak for the first time in human history in a way that they've never really had before. But the problem is when you lose the gatekeeper, anybody can say anything. And they can say anything with all the same weight and authority as anyone else. And we're watching this kind of play out in social media. It's just fantastic as our culture tries to figure out what life looks like now in a world without gatekeepers. Some of the most influential people in the last presidential election were Twitter personalities that didn't actually exist. Because both campaigns were paying hundreds of people to run thousands of Twitter accounts for pretend people to disseminate information like it was actually real. No, the people didn't exist. I mean, they don't exist at all, but uh, here is information that's being distributed. If you want to waste an afternoon, go on YouTube and start watching the Flat Earth videos. 
<laughs> so that's a great way to waste an afternoon or a day or three. Of these people that believe that the earth is flat, now they're trying to prove that the earth is flat on YouTube. And there's a strong community of folks that believe this in the NBA. And so there's all kinds of videos that get published and, you know, things like that. And it's on YouTube and there's no gatekeeper. There's no one saying, you're crazy. You need to stop doing this. We have embraced a technological world where everyone can say everything and believe everything all at the same time. And you can find value in the things that are important to you. I was talking yesterday with some of the, the news story I read this week that kind of blew my mind the most uh, was there's a, a web service called Twitch where you can watch people play video games. Not play the video games. You can watch other people play the video games. And there's a game that is being played on Twitch called Fortnite. And the guy who's playing Fortnite right now with the largest kind of fan base or whatever is making $375,000 a month. $375,000 a month to play a video game and have other people watch him. We've lost a culture with gatekeepers where there is a body of, of learned folks who say, no, you know, flat earth, that's crazy. You can't believe that here. The earth is round. We, we've lost a sense of people that, and in some ways this is good, but in many ways it's dangerous. And what it ends up doing is creating a culture where we as Americans now, and this is particularly dangerous in the younger generations, have been given the idea that we can believe whatever we want with zero consequence. It doesn't really matter. I'm my own boss. I'm my own scientist. I'm my own doctor. I mean, for Pete's sake, I'm going di- to diagnose myself on WebMD 10 times uh, more often than any doctor's ever going to see me. <laughs> I don't actually even have a primary care physician. I have another doctor. Who knows? You see, actually, that's a problem John's writing about in the same time as that they're dealing in the early church. When John is writing this, the story of Christianity has come inside time and space. Jesus has lived. He's died. He's resurrected. He's ascended into glory. And now they're having to figure out what do we do with the real truth? What do we do with the true truth? And what happens is you have a lot of great and faithful Bible teachers that start proclaiming the true truth. The apostles and the disciples. But at the same time, you have a bunch of false teachers that are coming in and trying to do it their own way, to say their own thing, to put their own little spin on it and to go, well, you know, I mean, not exactly that, but let's do this. And the problem is, is that there was one particular strain of this that was spectacularly nasty called Gnosticism. If you ever read it in print, it's Gnosticism. It's from gnosis, gnosis, which is knowledge. It is the idea, it was a pagan Greek idea, that you yourself could directly experience God directly. And all of Christianity was a rebuttal against that. You may never experience God directly because you experience him through Christ. You never have that. It's never an option for you to know God apart from your mind, apart from his scriptures, or apart from his son. It never happens. But yet, early church was struggling with these Greeks, uh, taking the work of uh, Plato and Plotinus and applying it to this mystical sort of, my insides can know God directly. 
it's almost like they were reading American literature. I read an article this morning on one of the major Christian websites arguing for this same type of thinking in the church today. It's by one of the 10 or 12 most influential men in evangelicalism today. And John's saying, oh, that's garbage. That's not the way it works. There is a true truth, and we are called to respond to that true truth. Here in the passage, in John's classic artistic way, right? For those of you that are super artsy, man, I'm preaching these books for you. They are stretched for me. I am not that guy. This is the message we have heard from him. Again, John's speaking from experience. He knows Jesus. Jesus was a man. When you think about this, this is kind of to break your brain a little bit. John was Jesus' best friend. I mean, we think of Jesus as a real man. I mean, he is a human. He had his disciples. He had his inner group, Peter, James, and John. But who's his closest? John is his closest. He's his best friend. When they go to share the Passover, where is the Last Supper? Where is John? He's basically right up against Jesus. We're not going to use the word cuddling. That would be weird. But like he's physically in contact with Jesus throughout the meal to the point where when he has to ask a question, he rolls back with his head on Jesus' chest. He's speaking from his own experience of his own Savior that he has known and loved intimately. And here, I'm going to tell you the true truth from what I know to be true is this. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And here he's picking up larger philosophical and theological concepts to make a statement that God is light. It's not God is the light. There's no article. He is light. And with that would come kind of two ideas in the back of our brain. One, he is light intellectually. And in that sense, it's to say that God is truth. Light is truth and darkness is ignorance or error. Again, remember, John is an artist. He's speaking in artistic fashion. And for those that are, um, you know, have their houses with maybe a little bit more clutter in them, you ever been in your house kind of moving around at night when you lose power? Ooh, that's tricky, isn't it? Oh, no. <laughs> We had Legos. Where did I leave the Legos? Where did I? Uh, I think the worst I have ever experienced, not to rat anyone out in the room, is a high heel turned upside down. And you're like, oh, that, that is a, that's a spiritual experience right there. Right? Because why? We, we understand that when the lights go out and it's dark, suddenly we can't see anything. We have no idea where we're going. We can't discern this or that. We can't make heads or tails of where we are. I, my favorite illustration of this was uh, in seminary when we were living up off Airwood Road, and it was in February, about, I don't know, maybe 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and the ice storm was so bad, it knocked out the entire grid of the western half of Charlotte. It took all four of us in the house an hour to find a light. Because it was so dark, we were all in the basement playing a game when the power went out, and we're like, oh no, we're going to die. We can't see anything at all. It's pitch black. It's completely miserable. It took us forever to get outside and realize once we got outside, we couldn't see anything other. It's completely pitch black. Intellectually, God is light because he is showcasing truth. He gives understanding. And we have this. It's amazing how much this has infiltrated our culture. Teachers, we, we say teachers live for that moment where a kid has understanding. 
What do we call that moment? The light bulb going on. Because we, we get this kind of conceptually, that light is equated with understanding and with truth. We also get conceptually, intellectually, it's dealing with truth and versus ignorance and error. But morally, it's dealing with purity as opposed to evil. I mean, it used to be in our culture that if deeds were evil were being done, they were done at night. Sadly, our culture's kind of changed a little bit, and we're getting increasingly shameless. We're comfortable doing our evil in the daytime. But the idea used to be that you did your crimes at night. I remember one of the places in which I have lived, there was a crime spree where people started stealing from houses at like 2.30 in the afternoon while everybody was away at school, and it like rocked the neighborhood. Because everybody's like, thieves break in at night. They don't come in the middle of the day. We get the idea. Evil's done in the dark. Uh, The light is for good things. It's for purity and obedience, and the Lord is the light. John is poetically, in in picturesque fashion, trying to highlight, to say, look, God is in his very essence. He is truth. He is understanding. He is purity. He is goodness. He is holiness, not in his actions, but in his essence. In his essence. And you think about, well, I, I don't... I don't fully understand the distinction that you're making between action and essence. And I'll ask it this way. Don't answer these questions. They are rhetorical. (laughs) Have you ever cheated at anything? Are you a cheater? It's interesting. Most of us will say, well, yeah, I've cheated at something in my life. But am I a cheater? No, I'm not a cheater. I'm a good person. You see, we realized we just made that distinction, didn't we? I'm comfortable saying I have done these actions, but oh, no, they don't impact my essence. I have cheated, but I am not a cheater. I I certainly wouldn't let that be defining who I am. The, The thing for God is that it's actually the reverse. He loves because he is love. He speaks the truth because he is truth. It is his essence that is the right thing. He is light. He is the source of knowledge and truth. He is the source of righteousness and purity. Why are the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments? Is it just rules that God thought up? No, he's explaining his character. This is just him telling you who he is. It's explaining his character, explaining who he is. So so God is light. Now, this would be a kind of a concept that would have been uh, popular, common, and easily understood in the time in which this is written. It's a little bit harder for us, uh, I think largely because we don't do philosophy as a nation anymore. And so the idea of light is a little bit far. The other thing is we've been raised on television, most of us, and so we don't think uh, in pictures, word pictures, the way they do back then. So he makes this statement that God is light. And he knows the reality of the human condition is whenever we interact with truth, what do we like to do? We like to immediately, if it's an inconvenient truth, create loopholes. We like to say, well, I mean, the gatekeeper may have some some understanding of the truth, but I'm going to have my own truth. I'm going to believe the world is flat. I'm going to believe whatever, pick your thing. Um, I mean, the, the number of just 
goofy fake science things that are out there today are just hysterically, so, I mean, so many you can't even count. And so now he begins to work through in verses 6 through 10 some of the immediate loopholes that he knows that people are going to try to create. He knows the culture in which he's living. He knows the way they think about the world. And he says, all right, knowing humans, when they hear that God is light, there's going to be certain things that they're immediately going to say to try to get out of that truth. And you think about it, it makes sense. If God is the fountain of truth, the fountain of wisdom, the fountain of purity and righteousness, there are certain things that people are going to say. And the first thing they're going to say is, my sin is not that big a deal. In fact, actually, it's so much not a big deal that, yeah, it really isn't going to even break fellowship with God at all. In fact, they're actually going to deny that their sin is a problem that it severs relationship between God and man. You see, he actually explains this in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, While we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with God and we continually walk in the darkness, guess what we're doing? We're lying and further demonstrating our darkness and the darkness and the light can't coincide. They can't coexist. Either light wins or darkness wins. It can't be both. For those of you that like to sleep in really dark rooms, you understand this. One little light is a problem. You can't sleep with the one little light because they don't coexist. And so here he's addressing the the, the idea of people, this loophole to say, you know, my sin's not not that big of a deal. That, I mean, I know God is good and all, but it's really not an issue. And again, it's almost like he's sitting, you know, down at the Walmart talking with people on a Sunday morning. And they're like, well, I mean, I love God and all, but I mean, it's, it's not like I'm that big of a deal. I'm not that big of a problem. I, I mean, I live a good life. I'm a moral person. I'm, I mean, I do the good things most of the time. And he's like, but you don't get it. If you have sin, sin is the problem. And the core of what sin's problem is, is that it severs fellowship between God and man. And not just the really bad ones, but darkness itself in any form or fashion separates from God. The people in his time at this point actually had a really sophisticated version of that. And they were saying, well, I have a good soul. Even if my body does bad things, I'm a good person. So kind of leave me alone. It's really interesting. Again, it, how our culture is just drinking from that same well as we're trying to kind of make this division between body and soul, body and spirit, to say that we're good people. I mean, how many times have I heard that? Well, I mean, he was a, he's got a good heart. He just does dumb stuff. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that about their kids. He's got a good heart. He's a good kid. He just sins grievously against the Lord all the time. But it's not a problem. Secondly, he, he looks at the, uh, well, uh, first, he, he gives answer to this. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. Okay, so what's the solution? But instead, 
If we walk in the light, so if we're continually living in the light of God, as God himself is in the light, then we'll have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, will continually cleanse us from all sin. So if we're walking in the darkness, if we're practicing the deeds of the flesh, if we're practicing the deeds of evil, it does separate us from God, and that is problematic and implied also is not only does it separate us from God, but it actually separates us from each other. Right? Intriguing part about that Garden of Eden story. Adam and Eve sin, and the first thing they do is they immediately make clothes for themselves, which is just staggeringly hysterical because the only person around is their spouse. Really? I mean, not to be crass, but what husband ever has that idea? I mean, if it's just him and his wife, it's like, no, we need more clothes. I don't understand the argument. But that's what he's doing. He's like, look, no, we have to hide from each other. Why? Because there's a breach in fellowship between the two of them. And here the answer is, no, look, if we're, if we're in the Lord, if we're walking in the light, if we are walking with God, no, instead the consequences are we have fellowship with God and even more so we have fellowship with one another and the sin that we do have within us is cleansed. We're cleansed from that immediate guilt. We're con- cleansed from that continued practice. As you walk with God and live with him, you are made more holy. You are really and genuinely transformed. Second loophole is an attempt to say, well, okay, if, if loophole number one is uh, to say that sin is not a big deal, well, okay, that's been defeated. It is a big deal. Second loophole is to say, well, sin, we'll say, is outside of me. It, it doesn't maybe kind of fully contaminate me. It, it doesn't affect me. It's not part of my nature. It's not who I am. They're denying that sin exists in the nature of mankind. And look at what happens in verses 8 and 9. If we have, I'm sorry, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we're saying, look, I, I have no sin at all. It hasn't impacted me in any way. My my thinking hasn't been uh, invaded by sin. My feelings haven't been invaded by sin. My uh, personality hasn't been invaded by sin. My body, that obviously has to be a young person who would try to hold that view because that's silly otherwise. But to say, I haven't been contaminated by sin in these ways. Sin hasn't affected my nature. In fact, actually, they had heretics that were going so far as to say they didn't sin at all, but that was a mess and that's something else. But it was, in essence, a denial of the common nature of humanity to say that I am inherently not a sinner. Now, I may periodically do sin, but it hasn't touched my nature. And I would say this is the single most influential view in American culture of the day. If you were to ask 100 Americans from all over the country to ask them, how they think about evil deeds they've done, I bet all 100 of them that if they don't know the Lord are going to say, well, I'm sure I've done some bad stuff, but inside I'm a good person. I may have sinned, but it hasn't affected my nature. It hasn't affected who I am. It hasn't affected how I see myself. It hasn't affected my identity because sin is external to me. 
I love watching this one play out where uh, we can see when we're thinking of others or whatever. We'll look at someone and they've maybe bent the truth a little bit and we're comfortable thinking of them as a liar. But even as we bend the truth about them, we certainly aren't thinking of ourselves as liars. Well, I, I may have done this sin once or twice, but certainly I'm not that kind of guy. Certainly I can't say that I'm a cheater. Certainly I can't say that I'm a liar. Certainly I can't say that I hate people. I am a hater. No. Because we like to believe that sin is external to our nature. But what does he say? Verse 9. Well, finishing 8. If if that's the case, we're just deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. We're lying again. But instead, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, notice that same thing. It's that same view of how we deal with sin. When we're trying to keep it away from us, divorce it from us, it only increases and compounds and grows. But when we confess it, God not only forgives it, but he cleanses. That happens in both of these. Where If you're lying about it, it only compounds it. It makes it worse. For those of you that maybe have had periods of your life where you uh, experienced a struggle to tell the truth, you understand that feeling. Where one lie produces another lie, which produces another lie, and then those lies have lots of little lie babies, and suddenly you're filled with lies, and you don't exactly remember what the truth was, or who you've told what lies to, and you're like, I don't even know how to get out of this anymore. Sin compounds and produces more sin, whereas God's promise is to cleanse, to remove Not just the guilt of it, but the power now. So that we don't have to be people of lies now. So that we don't have to be people of unfaithfulness. Third defeater here, this uh, thing that John throws out is the loophole in verse 10. Is the idea that they're denying that they even showcase sin in their conduct. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There apparently are some in that day that are going so far as to say, look, I've never sinned at all. And we don't see this very often in our culture yet, but I think we're going to. And I think it's going to hit very soon, and it's going to look a little different than theirs. What it's going to look like is a denial of right and wrong to the extent to say, I've never done anything wrong because you can't tell me what wrong is. Who are you to judge right and wrong, man? Who are you to tell me what's right? I live by my own standards, and I've never done anything wrong. I embrace the way I live. I embrace the way I am. And we're already seeing that some with the crazy wackos who get arrested for bringing guns in places they shouldn't be bringing them uh, and doing terrible things, but it hasn't fully hit the wider culture. It will. I think it will. But you see, all three of these are, are loopholes in the human existence to try to get out of sin and to get out of the character of God. To say that sin's not a big deal, it doesn't break fellowship with God. To say that sin's not a big deal, it hasn't influenced my nature. To say that sin is not a big deal, it's not being displayed in my conduct. It's all of them trying to make sin small. Because when sin is small, God is small. You don't need a big God if your sins are... Because you can still think that you're him. Or her. 
You can think that you are God, that you're in charge of your world. You can think that you can save yourself. It diminishes your need for the divine. It lets you fall down your own little YouTube hole of flat earth or no sin issue where I am my own God and I can believe whatever I want to believe. It's interesting that one of the great verses of the entire Bible is hidden right here, verse 9. And it's an answer to people who are trying to diminish sin. People who are trying to see sin as small, as see it as not a big deal, to see it as just kind of maybe a breach in etiquette or a societal kind of hiccup. And here instead, in contrast, if you own it, if you repent of it, if you face it and deal with it, instead we have this great promise that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And very quickly, I would maybe give us a couple of challenges as we think about doing this. We live in a world that is populating these loopholes as early and often as we possibly can. Our culture is trying to take sin and to try to just make it a nothing. We've grown up, well, I guess my age, grown up on the, the ethics of you can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And we're actually dropping that last clause out now to kind of really say you can do whatever you want to do. I don't care, man. Just do whatever you want to do. And as Christians, it is unbelievably important that we hold the line that actions have consequences both in this life and the life to come. Because you realize in a culture that says you can do whatever you want to do, there is no need for salvation because there's nothing to be saved from. There's no need for Jesus. There's no need for a Savior. There's no need for God at all because you already have usurped His throne. So it is unbelievably important that we raise our children, that we meditate in our own minds, that we share with one another this constant refrain that actions have consequences. Sin is a big deal. We should also be aware that when we hold that line, what will happen to our relationship with the world? It will deteriorate rather rapidly. Because to hold that line in American culture today is to hold the one unalterable offensive truth that there is right and wrong and God is the one who sets it, not you. And that not only does he do that, but that you are wrong and your wrongness will catch up with you. So first, to be aware to hold that line that there uh, is sin, that actions do have consequences, to be ready for that. But then secondly, is to not be afraid to do the hard work, to work through our actions and consequences. You see, one of the great tactics for dealing with sin, one he doesn't put in this list, but he very easily could have, is the wonderful diversionary tactic. Where rather than me deal with my mess, I'll deal with yours. Because one, yours is way more easy to see than mine is because I can't see my own. And it's more fun because I don't have to actually do any hard work or get my feelings hurt 
or have my own little, you know, sacred cows threatened or things of the sort. And to make sure that we as a people of God are doing that constant heart work to go, okay, what are my sins? I mean, David's prayer says, show me my hidden sins, show me my secret faults. Why? So that I can get rid of them. So that by the power of God that is within me, I can be forgiven by Jesus so that I can be cleansed from the unrighteousness so that it can all be taken away so I can live a new and victorious life. And then finally, the one other thing I think you're going to watch in our culture over the next, uh, I don't know, probably 15 to 20 years is a massive debilitating loss of hope. I would say over my entire lifetime in America, if we've watched national hope deteriorate, we've basically, we're running out of options. Uh, you can kind of see what's really happened. Part of why our political climate is so polarized is that our last two presidents, one by each side, has become the great hope of the nation. And when uh, your guy is not in office, maybe your guy has never been in office, but when your guy is not in office, you've lost your hope for the nation and then when your guy loses office and the next guy comes in, which eventually is going to happen, you've lost your hope for the nation. We're watching a nation that's just having hope eroded. And it's interesting that as, as believers, we have to hold this line. Because if we lose the idea of sin, we lose the idea of hope at all. Because there's nothing to hope for. There's no forgiveness to hope for. There's no better life to hope for. It's, we're just left with what we have. And as our culture continues to kind of just melt into a puddle of evil goo, for us to have hope in the midst of it means that we even have to hold the hard part, that sin is real and only Jesus is the solution for sin. May it be that the church doesn't do what so much of our culture has done, get rid of the gatekeepers where anybody can say anything and believe anything, but instead may we be faithful to God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for the church and ask that you would make us faithful to your word, make us faithful to your character, make us faithful to your truth, and we do ask that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Give us holy lives, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.